for those of you who haven't visited Arizona, 100 degrees probably sounds terrible. It's actually not as bad here. Well, it's a dry heat, right? It is It is a dry heat, and there's like <laughs> lots of margaritas, which also helps uh, with coping with the heat. Oh, the margaritas. You know, you know, that seems like it would be a fun project would be to track the spread of the margarita. Get some paleontologists involved. Sort of like and look yeah. through the substrate and see uh, see when margaritas came up. I feel like with all cocktails, maybe this was in the seventies. I'm guessing maybe it was the early eighties. The serving size for a margarita, I feel like, increased. And then just just based on my own archaeology here in Austin, I think I don't know when this occurred, but at some point someone invented, as we call it around here. You'd have to tell me what they call it uh, over there in. Uh, in Arizona land, but they invented something that they call the Mexican martini, which is served to you in a, a, uh, a contemporarily sized martini glass, which is to say a large one. But then they bring you the whole tumbler, the whole tumbler restful of the margarita they've made. And they, they, they call that a Mexican martini. It's uh, I spent, interesting. I spent several years in college trying to figure out what made it a martini. Um, now, I didn't do, of course, the most direct thing that you would do, which would be to ask the bartender. That just seemed too easy. But, uh, yeah, I, I think all it is is the, the, the way they serve it to you and, and the quantity. There's a famous place here in Austin called Trudy's where uh, they, were, they were infamous for only allowing you to order two of them, which, which is probably good advice. <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely good advice. <laughs> but however, yeah, there, it, there was there was a chink in their system, uh, uh, if you will, a chink in their armor, which was it was only two Mexican martinis you could order two. You could only order two of whole rest of them and you order as much as you want, which is a little like uh, that's a good metaphor for how sort of like governance goes wrong in IT departments, just sort of kind of overlooking some uh, some workarounds. Right. Yeah, I think here. So we here we have something similar. Although I haven't heard anybody call it like a Mexican martini or something. I we have this thing where they have like the skinny margarita craze mm. is like a big deal, um, and so you know it's like lo, low carb, I guess, which is basically just they don't put the sweet and sour mix in there and they use yeah. just lime juice. Yeah, um, which is you know my view is if you just add more tequila. Then it's lower calories. Uh-huh. Like, That's get it. all the carbs, get all the carbs and the fruit out. You know, get all the fruit out and just displace that with uh, with tequila, and then and then you're in a good place. And probably would make for an interesting podcast as well. That's a that's a very that's a very user centric view of how the bar yes. works. It's like here's what you should do: just put more tequila in there. That's, yeah, yeah. You know, I I like I like the uh, I like the skinny margarita because because it is. You know, they, they always charge you a little more for it, and it's not quite as sweet because it doesn't have the sugar in it. But there's two reasons. One, you know, you, always, you can sympathize with this. Maybe, I don't know if all of our listeners, uh, you know, grew up, so to speak, with margaritas, but, like, it's really easy to make a bad margarita, and it's just no good, right? Like, like it's one thing to have maybe, like, a whiskey sour or a whiskey and Coke. Like, it's kind of it's a little hard to screw that up, but a margarita is, like, it's a little more complicated, whereas if you get, like... You ruin it with like some bad like uh, sugary mix. You're basically it's like some weird energy drink with like tequila in it. Like it doesn't taste good, and so right. part of it I think is like what you're saying is whatever the sugary mix they have is. So if you get a skinny margarita, you don't run that risk at all. It's basically just lime juice and tequila and maybe some soda water if they are don't mess it up too bad. 
But uh, right. yeah, like I was in Alabama at the beaches there a while back. And uh, I think the way they, they use the trick of making a margarita where they put some Sprite in it, which actually I, I saw the guy making it and he put it in a big plastic cup as you would do at a beach. So already my fancy pants margarita drinking person is like, whoa, this is not going to turn out well. But it was fine. It was it was good. But you know, they become more fine as you have more of them. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> once, you're, once you're finishing so, off that second one, then everything's dangerous. I feel like the, the art of the margarita is, uh, and not that I have this perfected, but like the more stuff you put in it, the easier it is to mess up. Like mm. the best ones are just like lime juice tequila and agave nectar and that's it yeah no to, fancy stuff you'll have to give me a recipe because i don't think this is a little embarrassing but i don't think i've ever successfully made a good margarita at home like it always something's always wrong with it so maybe maybe uh we'll have to put a recipe in, in the show notes here but that that is like so it's basically it's the opposite of a bloody mary because a bloody mary only gets better the more stuff you put in there as far as i'm concerned it's, it's, it, you yeah so there's there's a uh Online, you can find this really common recipe. It's called, uh, I think it's called Tommy's, Tommy's Margarita, which doesn't sound very Mexican, but Tommy's Margarita is pretty good. Mm. And again, it's just lime juice, tequila, and agave nectar. Pretty solid. Yeah. So we'll, huh. we'll find a link to that and throw it, throw it in the show notes, like you said. Well, you know, speaking of the nuances of the real world, here's, here's what I was thinking, going, coming off the tails of our last show. We'll see. Maybe we'll, we'll have a series called... Are people actually doing that? We'll see. We'll see what's going on. But I, I've been thinking recently. Like I was at DevOps Days London last week, and uh, you know, I go to a lot of these, talk to people about DevOps, and and I, I was reflecting and, and thinking. Like I talk with a lot of people who want to do software better, and they want to do DevOps, and you know, I go over, uh, you know, my my trick in a Dev as as I call my DevOps talk is like it's not actually a DevOps talk. I just talk about how large organizations improve the way they do software. And so, like, I don't really come across that many people who are like, we do textbook DevOps. We've got developers and operators, and they're all in one team, and they support the application just, like, front to back. What do you call it? Uh, braces to suspenders or belts. I forget my yeah. English. Soup to nuts. And so, now, I, I assume these teams are out there. Uh, and I probably have talked to people out there. I mean, I mean, you know, DevOps, that's, that's a thing, right? I got a whole column over at the register where I ostensibly write about that. So, uh, so it must be real, but as, as with so many unsolvable, uh, mysteries that I seem to be assigning myself now, I want to find people, I want to find teams who are actually doing like canonical DevOps stuff. Who've got the, uh, I don't think anyone does it literally, but they've got the metaphoric pagers that they're carrying around or whatever. So. That's that's my that's my question to you this episode. Are there people who actually do DevOps? Uh, I I haven't really met one. I think <laughs> I think it's probably happening in like smaller shops, uh, maybe like startup shops where you don't have really ops and dev as formal constructs. You kind of have we hired this person who's a sysadmin. We hired this person who's a architect and this person who's a dba and a person who's an engineer and together you are devops mm. and you're also the entire technology team um so i think there's some of that going on i think what i've seen a lot of is 
uh, operations wanting to become cool. So they are like, here, sysadmins, like here's some Terraform and now you're called DevOps. I, so I've seen a lot of that. And then, you know, the um, dynamic between the, the developers and the operations people, I think maybe in some cases those feedback loops become tighter the way that they collaborate becomes more frictionless and less yeah. the wall of tickets. Um, but for them to actually live and breathe as a singular team, I haven't seen that. And I think the challenge there is kind of this interesting dynamic that we always talk about when it comes to enterprise transformation, which is the battle between centralization and decentralization. Mm. And how do you have all these distributed teams but maintain some semblance of standardization and standard practice um, across that, which is very important because you have people coming in and out of your organization all the time, different people switching roles. There needs to be a certain amount of consistency so that people can reason about how the thing works how it's monitored and how it's alerted on. And there, there are certain fundamental principles of the software application lifecycle that should just not be fancy. They shouldn't be different. It's not like a box of chocolates, right? That's right. Hopefully. It's, it's, there's, there's like you got, you got the, the Tommy's recipe for enterprise IT. Just use that. It's simple. You don't, you don't, you right. don't want to screw it up. <laughs> Tommy's right. IT. Yeah, you know, it, it is. It is like, like as you say, uh, it seems like I, I, I don't know. I could, I could, I could hesitate about all these terms, but I'll just use all of them. It seems like if you scale up something like DevOps, it doesn't really like. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm repeating myself, but I can't find it. I haven't come across a lot of people doing it, and I think, I think instead, what I more commonly come across is. Like you know, I talked with some of your uh, your coworkers over on a Pivotal Conversations podcast a few weeks, however long ago it was. I don't know, but it seems like instead of, I mean, there's two things. One, like you were saying, is there's the infrastructure people, and they're also kind of. I guess you've got two types of infrastructure people: the ones who maybe like plan out what the infrastructure is and build it, and then the people who operate stuff in production. And it seems like what I kind of hear about and see what DevOps ends up meaning is like what you're saying is, oh, we should just talk with those people more, <laughs> right? Like, right. like the and 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 convert and by we I mean the developers and conversely, the and this is a very unsatisfying thing I keep coming back to. Conversely, let's call them the ops people. The ops people have like all these new technologies that they need to sort of like start using and providing and really think about how they how they are treating the developers more like customers and servicing them. I mean, you're either using like a public cloud service, in which case there's someone doing that, whoever's running the public cloud, or you're not, and then you've got to provide all of that, right? And so it's almost like uh, whoever these ops people are, they're now making a product that's all these services that they need to provide, which means I guess you need like a product manager or something, right? And and like I think on one team or or even let's say five teams, that really wouldn't make a lot of sense like you would have the old mythical full stack developer uh, just because like 
there's probably some fancy chart you could make up. I love all those charts that are always like the same. There's like these three same lines and people try to use them as proof of things. And you're like, that's a standard chart that you use for everything. Like there's no basis for it anyways. But there's probably some chart of like, would it be a floor or a ceiling? There's some floor of the number of people that you need to have before you centralize your IT like you were talking about. So whatever that right. that floor is that you reach, at that point, you've got to be like, all right, we, we no longer are we going to have all of these individual teams kind of like working on their own stack of stuff, their platform, as we would say, but now we're going to centralize it. And the thing that we're going to do different than we did last time is we're going to have one or more product managers who talks with the, the, the development teams and says, what do you need? How's this working out? And um, I don't know. I don't I mean, do, do, do you encounter that kind of thing or am I just making that up? a backlog or whatever. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was thinking about it as you were talking and, you know, the thing that came into my mind is DevOps in the enterprise is really cross-functional delivery teams. So mm. you're going from like, I have database team, I have a sysadmin team, I have a... Uh, you know, middleware team to like potentially have one delivery team that has a person that represents each of those areas, network, etc. Um, I mean, I at least I think that's kind of what it looks like. As we move to cloud, those roles tend to converge a little more. So the more we get into public cloud, maybe those start to look more and more like one role that's called DevOps engineer. Yeah. Um, but you know, still there's still kind of this separation between dev and ops but i think the difference is i don't know i think the difference is the way the work gets segmented out um where the world used to be that and and for many places still is quite frankly that you would have a big group of dbas and the big group of dbas for example would do like 50 projects at a time Mm -hmm. and each project would like submit their tickets the DBA would go try to do the work, something wouldn't be right, or they'd look at the ticket and be like, this is wrong, reject it, send it back to the architect. And so the the feedback loops themselves were quite long um, and didn't contain good information fidelity. So mm. the feedback was really like, I canceled your thing because it's wrong, please try again. Um, and the movement of DevOps, I think we're starting to see more where you kind of have dedicated delivery teams to an initiative or a product or an epic a large epic of work so that it becomes less uh, chopped up and hopefully that tightens the feedback loop and people are picking up the phone more or chatting in real time more there's less of this I kind of described the wall of tickets but I imagine like the World War Z where all the zombies are stacked up against the wall kind of like <laughs> right you know, it's like this endless, like, man, if I could just walk over to this person's cubicle and have a conversation, I'm sure that I could file one ticket or maybe even zero um, because it's probably less time to do this work than it is for me to actually file out the ticket. And that, that's what's, I think, was really frustrating from the world we came from. And so I feel like DevOps um, in enterprises is more of those things than it is what you described as you know, the academic portrait of let's just stick everybody on the same team and we'll all sit together every day and we, we will all just work together all the time. Like I don't, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that as much and I don't know. I don't know why I imagine it's because of the way work ebbs and flows. 
um, into the infrastructure areas. I imagine it's also because of organizational structures and keeping control and, you know, things like functional alignment and how do you, again, drive kind of that centralized strategy for certain pieces. Um, which is interesting because it kind of has a tie to our conversation about enterprise architecture as well, right? Mm, yes. Which is how do I how do I drive these standards and this governance if everyone is self-identifying with their own DevOps team and not identifying with the larger whole, which kind of tends to happen when people work very closely in a, in day to day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I've probably been missing it, but back in the uh back in the agile days uh, there was there there became this idea of the old uh, the old scrum of scrums, which evolved into uh, you know things like safe and uh, dad and and these big like scaling up agile and well one well I haven't read the safe stuff but I've read some, many of those other things man they're always so painful to read it's hard to read those books which which uh, and those overviews but it always results in sort of like here's here's a uh, here's a hierarchy of a bunch of independently operating teams that need some sort of coordination across all of uh, all of the enterprise if you will right like the 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 astounding number i use nowadays cuz you know there's some public article about it is like jp morgan chase has 19,000 developers right and just like what do i do with that <laughs> and and right. uh, and and like how do i and then and then just imagining um you know you're you're You've been in parts of the finance world across across your career, and uh, you know you can just imagine all the various things, services, and workloads, and applications that something as big as JPMC does, and you've got to somehow coordinate across all that stuff. And so, so now I've stacked up three things. We'll see if I remember them. One, coordinate across all that stuff. That's like a really poorly defined problem, <laughs> right? Like, like that's the kind of thing that it would be great to see some sort of like. Uh, dismal patterns book of like what are all these things you got to coordinate right and you can always get I think I think one of the more interesting ways to get a picture of that is and and I'm sure you see things like this all the time um, well like in your industry would be just look at like the claims process like there's probably a lot of coordinating across all sorts of stuff there or or another one that's more familiar to more people is is uh, well slightly more familiar if they're if they're good drivers and their houses don't blow up or you know or something like applying for a mortgage like all the back office of mortgage stuff must be really complicated and so there's all that kind of coordination so one like it'd be useful to have uh, coordinating that stuff and then and then and so the second thing is sort of like when you have those nineteen thousand developers the reaction that I would see in the agile world is basically it would just be like, it, you just end up with the same thing. You've got like committees, like instead of fi a chain of five committees, you've got a chain now of three committees and there's someone in charge of like, you know, uh, you got a backlog and a backlog has stories in it and a story, you know, is part of an epic and epics are part of a saga or some metaphor hole that you end up falling down. Of, uh, of how to account for this stuff, but it's the same sort of rolling up of things. Um, and then and then there's also this notion, which is, you know, like, well, what if you only had, I guess, 10,000 developers, <laughs> right? Like, like right. It, sometimes there's this idea of like, oh, things are too complicated. So once you simplify it, this problem that you're nattering on about like goes away, which none of those are ultimately satisfying, but it is a good sort of like, baseline to figure out with DevOps. And it feels like 
DevOps would go through the the same thing. And so what I was saying I'm probably missing out on is like I haven't I mean I I I I have come across and read scaling DevOps things, but I don't remember any of them, which must mean that like they weren't very good. <laughs> but there hasn't been a lot of discussion of like scaling DevOps stuff up that But I don't that that seems I don't know applicable that... to that. I don't know that I feel like any of the scaling agile stuff is very good either. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It, well, I didn't editorialize very much in there. Just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the coordination problem is hard, and it's a matter of organizational identity too. So yeah. everybody compares themselves to Netflix, but Netflix has been pretty um, outspoken about the fact that they kind of embrace the chaos, so to speak. Yeah. So they do least amount of centralized coordination possible. Um, but they do do some and most enterprises are very much not Netflix. Yeah. So, and the worst thing you can do is try to be something that you're not. So if you try and bring that model to an organization who's very centralized control, it's not going to work very well because you'll just have this identity conflict of, um, these two worlds, these you know, kind of two cultures. Um, and so you have to kind of balance those things. And, you know, I think what's interesting is does Dev, you know, like I said, does DevOps start to look like um, these cross-functional delivery teams? And then like, maybe you can centralize that because maybe each member of the team still kind of reports up through their silo, but for temporary assignments, they're in these cross-functional teams. That could potentially be a way to do it. Um, where you kind of still have that feedback loop up to the central core. Another thing that I think has become more and more common, especially uh, through things like platforms, is DevOps starts to look like automation and toolings teams where you're taking mm, yeah. manual fulfillment and you're actually replacing it with software and automation and you're baking kind of the decisioning patterns, the desired decisioning patterns of like each piece of the infrastructure into some kind of self-service offering where instead of fill me out a ticket that tells me what you need, uh, pick from the in and out menu that has three items on it. Um, <laughs> and as always, right? you might know the secret menu, but yes, yes. I, I, th- I think, right. I think, I think that's, that's another possible conclusion I come against all the time, which is, I remember I first, well, not that I first encountered, but like I first heard a good version of this. I don't really even remember when this was. It must have been recently, but why I was there. But at one of the, it was bef- way before Pivotal. At one of these like fancy uh, uh, get-togethers, what what do you call a boondoggle? There you go. You know, just like luxuriously getting together with people for absurd reasons. Uh, like I sat next to a Netflix person, um, and they were one of the people on the tools team. And, you know, we were having this interesting conversation about exactly what you're saying is like they were on the tools team. So I was asking what they were doing. And and the way that I summarized it in my mind is is they were basically saying, well, our job, we can't mandate tool usage. But what we do is we try to make tools that are that are useful enough and good enough such that people want to use them. And and they come to us and they want to use those tools. And that's how we try to standardize the way that we're doing things. And. I've always thought that, you know, kind of goes back to the product stuff we were t- talking about earlier is like you almost like you look at all those developers. I don't know what else to call them. The people working on the applications, product teams. And and you think you think of that as your market and you're like, how can we serve that market and help them out? Um, and of course, in a in a uh, a regular enterprise, you know, 
you probably want more than the uh, freewheeling chaotic market forces to dominate. Like you would like to be successful and ensure that <laughs> instead right. of just leaving it up to people's predilections to check, to test. But yeah, I mean, as you're saying, that's something I come across all the time is that what we're talking about is establishing that menu. And again, I mean, just to tack on my notion, like, but we also have a product manager. Like that seems like a huge difference from because you know you always had run books and self service portals and all of that stuff, uh, but nowadays it's more about like crafting these these tools and platforms that you have, and uh, you know kind of like we were talking about back on the enterprise architecture episodes, like if you can establish like the one type of build pipeline that you have and the one type of way of of doing microservices and all of that, that seems to get to that point where you can scale something up and have that control and governance over it that you would, you would need to, uh, to operate at a large scale. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of, um, teams are struggling through or organizations are struggling through is especially with companies that are catching up now, introducing practices like continuous integration, I see many struggling with this idea of, okay, well, I've created a DevOps team, which is an interesting concept, and it's maybe basically a shadow IT team that sits within the delivery areas, which is very similar um, to what we came from and why we kind of centralized operations, uh, you know, way long ago. But you have this this couple developers that have nominated the the DevOps crew, and and those folks then become uh, the beating post for anything that the dev team doesn't want to do. So all of a sudden, it's like, hey, DevOps team, like build our pipelines. And um, I feel like, you know, the nice thing about running it through the automation front is there's much clearer delineation of role and expectation, whereas... I, at least my perspective is an application development team should be responsible for their own delivery pipelines. Like you don't get to abdicate yourself out of the responsibility of how you deploy software. And, you know, release engineering has been a formal construct in kind of enterprise IT for a really long time. And so the DevOps team just becomes the release engineering team that got supplanted out of operations and is now you know, reporting to the same manager that the developers are reporting to, but you still kind of have this dynamic where they're not uh, they're not integrated, and yeah, they're they're not embedded issues, in the teams, right? Or... Yeah, because how do you deploy an application that you don't understand? Well, the only way to do that is to kind of create formal abstractions, and then you just end up creating a platform or some semblance of an internal platform. Um, where you tell your developers like your deploy has to look like this or follow these patterns and then life will be good. But then you say, well, why wouldn't I just get a platform? So it's very interesting where we kind of have the DevOps organizational evolution, the focus on automation evolution, and those two things pushing forward. And I think we're ending up somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, at least on the enterprise side. Yeah, yeah. No, I you know, and and that's I don't know if this is a a a good idea universally, but that is something like like I've seen at organizations is, you know, like when I was talking with uh with Anthony and David over over at, you know, at Allstate there. Your folks. Yeah. Uh 
it's almost like this emerging how do we scale DevOps, which is like, well, we need we need a place to run this stuff and we need these tools. So we build that and then we need some people who like are going to use it, you know, build stuff on top of it. And then sooner or later, it's like these it's sort of like it it it, uh, it appears or it emerges that like you're like, oh, we're the DevOps team. <laughs> right. And and I and I say that in a hesitating thing, because as you point out, right, like it is. The idea of DevOps is that everyone does DevOps and there is no team doing it, right? Like it's what it's what everyone is doing, which is the whole point of the uh, the Portman Two or whatever of it. But you know, I, I guess I guess people end up calling it like a platform or a tools team or something like that. But it seems like I mean I've talked with several organizations where all of a sudden people realize that like holy crap, I do the platform and tools stuff. I had no idea that was going to happen, and and. That seems like at scale, like more of what I hear happening than um, we got some operations people that we put on every team of developers, and then the operations people learned to like code some more, and the developers people learned to do operations, and then they all went and worked on their stuff. There's a lot more standardization of, of, of what they use. Uh, and then, therefore, you come up with a whole team of people who works on that. Um, and and then I, I guess the remaining I mean there's all this other stuff of DevOps which is really like to my mind just a continuation of agile software development right like the way the way you know you you uh, you check in all your code and you're nice with each other and you focus on like the feedback loop of seeing if your stuff worked or not so like that stuff's all well and good and then and then there's the other part of it of like you know developers being on call or whatever which which um, you know, I mean, I always have two thoughts on that. One is like, uh, I mean, hasn't it sort of always been the case that if you're a developer on on a piece of software and something goes terribly wrong, someone's probably going to call you eventually <laughs> to, to yeah, help I out think with the, it? And the eventually and, is the key word. There. Yeah, yeah, and and then and then too again, like like does that actually happen that there's like developers who like in, at, at large enterprises who are like on call to do stuff like. That's another. That would be a good thing to start asking people if they're actually doing it, because that would be a good tracer to see if uh, if, dev, if there actually is like an enterprise DevOps going on. Yeah, I I mean we do it with our own internal teams, so that's been an interesting transition, and that's been a challenge for us because we have um, a centralized kind of command center, which I think is important and serves a, a legitimate function, but there's always this dynamic of like. Well, did you get the person on the phone fast enough, and was it the right person? And I think um, there's just this sense of kind of a loss of control when you put developers directly on on call for their code, um, and that's where I think getting to the data is really important, um, and making sure that you have the right automation in place, or yeah. and you really need something like a pager duty or something similar to to make sure that people are waking up because. You know, you take somebody who's not used to being on call, you put them on call, A, they may hate you for life, and then B, um, you know, you may just not get the best incident response um, if you haven't adequately prepared them for that responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so the intuitive motivation there makes sense, right, that if you're responsible for uh, for managing something, you, you're, you'll likely make it so it's manageable, <laughs> right? Like, Yeah, I mean – the thought is to align the incentive system, right? I mean, we, it's like Freakonomics, like the conclusion that they come to in Freakonomics is kind of like the world operates off incentives. And so you're aligning the incentive system to, to the work, which is 
I'm a developer. I'm writing code. I have a strong incentive to not be called in the middle of the night, so I'm going to write code in such a way that I don't get called in the middle of the night. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and there are many, many references to, you know, why that happens. Um, the the James Hamilton paper is one of my favorites, where he talks about, you know, when the developers are ultimately responsible for the availability. I, I'm going to screw up the quote here, but it's something along the lines of, when developers are ultimately responsible for the for the availability, automation is the likely outcome. When operations is responsible for the availability, a larger operations team is the likely outcome. That's um, right. Interesting <laughs> observation on his part. And I think if you look, you know, at least through my history, if I look um, at organizations, that has certainly manifested itself to be true. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, just one, one, one parting like bit before we wrap up here, you know, I think I started thinking about this stuff when I, uh, as 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 with so many thought trains, like when I read that uh, that Google SRE book, and it's interesting, like you read through that, and they mention DevOps, but like the model that they throw out is not really like orthodox DevOps. It's a lot more aligned with aligned. It's a lot more like what, what you were talking about, where you develop the uh, the menu of things you can use, and um, along with you know you actually yeah, talk with people big and negotiate of with eliminate. Them. Yeah, and and so so like it's 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 interesting to think about at that scale. If they don't do like orthodox DevOps, then if you do want to be like Google, then more of what maybe you end up doing is you spend a lot of time figuring out what the services are that all your product teams will need, and you make those services. And they don't exactly say this say it this way in the SRA SRE book, but it's like you're free. You have the freedom not to use these services, but then you're completely unsupported. <laughs> right. Don't call us for help. Right, right. Which, which I, I, I don't know. Th- then it res- rests on figuring out from a product management perspective, like the right way to choose and build those services and keep them updated to get away from the original problem that I think DevOps was was not excited about. Is like these infrastructure people don't evolve and they keep telling us no, and somehow we need to fix that. And also the software keeps going down. Which, uh, which, which is how you know why you would rotate people onto those teams. But uh, yeah, so there you go. I think I yeah. think enterprise DevOps maybe doesn't exist exactly uh, like I mean so far doesn't exist as that is exactly in this orthodox idea. But there's there's ongoing certain interpretations and uh, transmogrifyings of it, which uh, as we see as we scale up. But it'll be fun to to hear more stories of how people actually practice this kind of thing. Uh, in larger organizations. So with that, this has been another uh, little sub-series in the Cote Show Variety Podcast. If you want to check out other episodes and subscribe to this one, all sorts of things, you can just go to Cote.show. There's uh, there's all sorts of other ones where uh, Matt and I talk about uh, various things. We refer to some of them there. And uh, you can find the show notes there. I forget which number this is. So just go to Cote.show and you can find, uh, we'll put that margarita recipe in there a few other things like that. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.